Happy Father's Day. Um, you know, in the, in the book of Malachi, God says that um, He's going to turn fathers' hearts toward their children and children's hearts back toward their father, which gives us a big clue about how central God's design for human flourishing um, includes fatherhood. And um, you understand that. Like, you can... You get that from one of two angles. Either you've experienced it, uh, good fatherhood, and you, you know the substance of that and how it does m- move toward flourishing, or you, you, you've experienced the antithesis of that and you can feel that gap, that, that, that missing space. But um, fortunately, the good news, regardless of your, your, your history or, or even your own um, uh, <laughs> challenges with fatherhood. God is a good, good father to all. He heals and He fills the gaps that we have. And He's intent, intent on bringing out the very best in you as a father. So we have that. We have the best. Well, thank you, dads. Uh, fatherhood's a joy. <laughs> it's one of my greatest joys. I watch you, many of you. I've learned from many of you. I appreciate you. I thank you. It's a life's work. Um, but it's tough sledding. <laughs> it is. Fatherhood ain't easy. But that's life in the valley. That's life in the valley. We've been looking at this concept in Mark chapter 9 where this, this God of the mountain comes into the valley. And he, and he ends up talking to a dad. He's just like us. He's working through life's obstacles. And, and, and life's demons, literally in his case. And this dad exhibits maybe one of the best uh, characteristics of good fatherhood. Authenticity. He's real. There's no hypocrisy here. He doesn't pretend to be more than he is, which is oftentimes the way we challenge ourselves. As fathers, we think, I've got to be, I gotta be better than I actually am. Not a bad aspiration. But for the time being, you are who you are. When Jesus asks this father about his faith, he's bringing his son before Jesus, who is uh, struggling mightily, some bad spirit. When Jesus asks this man about his faith, do you remember what he says? He says, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's just real stuff right there. It might seem like... uh, like weak faith. It might seem like, like weakness as a person. But this is, this is not inadequacy. This is, this is actually spiritual health. It's actually spiritual maturity to say, I have faith, but I, I need help with my lack of faith. <laughs> so we can learn from this man just in that simple statement right there. The disciples, though, in this space, goodness, <laughs> are not demonstrating depth of maturity at all. But they get it eventually. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how maligned the disciples often are in Scripture? Peter, maybe the, the lead of those. And the very fact that they wrote about it. They wrote it. <laughs> 
Peter's failures are before us because Peter narrated his failures to Mark. (laughs) So they eventually get it, but in these particular moments, they are lackluster in their performance. They eventually realize it's not about their performance. It was never about their performance. It's about the purposes of God for their lives, whatever they may be. Let me recap briefly. Jesus takes Peter and John to the mountaintop. Somehow, Elijah and Moses show up in some form. Jesus' divinity starts to shine through and and transfigure him. And then Elijah and Moses are gone and, and only Jesus is there. God says some wonderful things, which we'll get to later, some profound things. But then they come out of the, out of the mountaintop experience and down into the valley to deal with, really, the root of our problems. Well, what the God of the mountain has to say to, to those of us in the valley is we've got a root problem that needs to be dealt with. And he deals with it. Are the poor motivations for uh, the battles of our life. The, what he finds is the disciples and the Pharisees making a spectacle of themselves. They're, they're at the center of a large crowd arguing with one another, presumably about why they failed to heal this boy. And I can only imagine they're fighting to defend themselves to explain their shortcomings, to jockey back for some kind of authority. Right? Why were were they doing that? Well, yeah, because they they failed. The, the, The man answers Jesus. When Jesus says, what's going on here? The man said, the father says, I asked your disciples to drive out this spirit, but they couldn't do it. Ouch. Right? They were like, hey, you know, we're still working on it. Why do you have to just throw that out there as soon as Jesus? I mean, we did, we were here. We came. Give Jesus a more flattering report. It's like, no, they, I asked them to take care of this and they couldn't do it. Why? Why are they fighting? Why are they arguing? Same reason. This is the thing. It's pride. It's ego. It's, it's self-interest. In today's uh, psychological mantra, verbiage, it would be they're suffering an identity crisis. It's pride is at the center of all of our problems. The proverbial wisdom of the Bible says that pride leads to ruin. And it doesn't necessarily say in what will be ruined, and it's because everything, no matter what you're doing, whether it's your own pursuits or even godly pursuits, if pride is at the center of your motivation, it's going to come apart. And it spirals. It doesn't fast. We, we, we slouch and move gradually toward ruin. You can see this happening. They're fighting, the, the disciples are fighting about this, their failure here. Jesus tries to speak to them shortly after about his own future fate, and they don't understand it. They were talking on their way to the next city when Jesus says, hey, what are you talking about? They don't tell him because they were talking about who's greatest among them. I mean, it's just coming apart. 
pride is just seeping in and impacting all their, their whole life. After all that they've been through with Jesus, they find themselves in this particular time and space failing to perform, uh, feeling like they don't belong, right? Most of them, Jesus takes two guys up on the mountain. That's it, just two. What about the rest of us? What's so special about them? They don't feel like they belong. They're feeling excluded. They don't understand. They, don't have, they can't comprehend. Their intellect is failing them. And now they're comparing themselves with one another. All these things that God says, don't do any of that. Why are they doing it? The pride. They desperately want to be great and do great things. Can you relate to that? You desperately want to be great. You desperately want to do great things. Have my life be worth it. But there's no evidence forthcoming in their life. Have you ever been there? You're working and working and working and you look around for affirmation. There's no one there. You've got to continue to try to prove it. You've got to work harder, aim higher, dream bigger. Where does it get us? When pride's at the center of it, it gets us with the soup that we live in as a world. It's divisive, it's argumentative, it's comparative, it's performance-based. That's what happens. That's where self-interest goes. And we're, and, we're, and we're in that. We're part of that. You look around, Look around your own life, an area that, you, you, that might, you might not be happy with, that you might be failing, and you're going to find pride lurking nearby. It's the very reason that we're sideways with other people. It's the reason we're angry. It's the reason we blame shift. It's the, it's the reason we're threatening to leave or have left. It's, it's, it's why we escape to more gratifying, immediately pleasurable things. Self-interest, pride. All the, all the ruinous things of life, all the damaging practices of our life, all the things that we're doing wrong are usually, if, if not centrally, a product of not feeling valuable enough, not feeling meaningful enough, not feeling like an advantage, not feeling successful. I don't know if you follow, follow basketball, but... Uh, the Golden State Warriors beat the Celtics in the NBA Finals, and at the end of the game, the star, Steph Curry, gets the trophy, and he starts crying. That's what happens now. Michael Jordan started it, I think. I don't think anybody cried before Michael Jordan did. <clears throat> now they cry. But why? Why? I watch, I think, I hope one of these, you know, interviewers says, why are you crying? <clears throat> That'd be the obvious question if I was there. They, they kind of ask it. They say, what are you feeling? What are you feeling right now? And through tears, I've, we've worked so hard. We've been through so much. My family's just been there for me. And I'm thinking, that was all true yesterday. Why weren't you crying yesterday? They've been there for you. You've been through it all. You've, all the stuff you're saying, your reason you're crying, was true yesterday. Why are you crying today? No one ever tells the truth here. Maybe they don't even know it. The tears are because, in my opinion, of the public validation of it all. We cry because for a moment we matter enough to be noticed, possibly enshrined as great. 
I'm a Larry Bird fan in the 80s and 90s. He didn't cry nowhere. And if, the Larry Bird story, it's just very interesting. He went to Indiana to play for Bob Knight. It was, you know, it was highly recruited, one of the top recruits in the, in the country coming out of high school, and he flamed out. Couldn't, couldn't hang in the, in, in academically and couldn't hang with Bobby Knight. So he goes back home to French Lick, Indiana, and he's working for the sanitation department. When Indiana State coach comes the next year and recruits him into a much less, you know, fishbowl kind of an environment, and then and he accepts and ends up taking Indiana State <laughs> to the finals of the NCAA tournament. I don't know if that school's ever been in the tournament again. They went to the finals against Michigan State and, you know, famously Magic Johnson. Not long into his professional career, I remember this interview, and this guy was making this point. He's like, do you realize how close, you you are one of the greatest basketball players ever. You realize how close you came to being a sanitation guy? And Larry Bird goes, I would have been the best sanitation guy in the country. There was something about even the way he said that and the way he carried himself, he always seemed a bit detached from all the accolades and all the attention. He seemed totally okay with himself, didn't need to prove anything, and just seemed like doing what he was made to do was enough. I, I Probably grossly overestimating Larry Bird's self-esteem. <laughs> My point, my point, there is one, is that in Christ, you are secure, you are released from this, these unattainable worldly pursuits of self-assurance, that you are detached and can be detached in Christ from worldly significance. In Christ, it really doesn't matter. can be just as fulfilled as a superstar basketball player or a sanitation guy. In Christ, the sense of value and purpose and worth is the same, no matter what about all that. If your identity is unquestionably settled by your Creator, you will perpetually... I'm doing a double negative. Let me switch. If your identity isn't settled by your Creator, you will perpetually get into arguments to try to prove your intellect and you'll end up hurting people in the process. If your identity isn't settled by your creator, you're going to end up joining ranks with a winning team to feel like you belong, where you can showcase your skill and, and dominate other teams. If it's, if it's not settled, you're going, to, you're going to end up associating with the next popular cause to demonstrate your virtues. But if you, if you are rock solid clear with who you are in Christ and in God's eyes, if your identity rests singularly on God's declarations of who you are, if the gospel is at the core of your identity, you don't have to be constantly seeking to prove it. To prove that you're somebody. Life can stop being an endless effort. 
to prove your standing, your value, your identity to others and yourself, right? You're trying to prove it to yourself more than anything else. The less we draw from performance and capabilities and status and what group we belong to, the more we're drawing on Christ, the more we experience God rather than ruin. The question is, how do we, how do, we do that, right? You're, I'm with, you're with me, right? It's like, yes! Who doesn't want a deep assurance of, of who we are apart from our performance? Just great. I'm with you, Mike. Don't need any more illustrations. Just tell me how to do it. What was Jesus' answer in the valley? He comes off the mountain. What was his answer? What was the answer to pride and self-promotion and ego and arguing? What did he say? It's pretty simple. We gloss right over this. He said, bring me the boy. Bring the boy to me. That's Mark 9, 19. Nobody can heal this boy. He's falling apart. He's on the ground. His dad is exasperated. What is the answer? Bring the boy to me. I see two things Two answers in this. Love and presence. So love, compassion. This, this is the, they're all arguing, and Jesus is like, this poor boy and this poor father, bring them to me. Paul captures this beautifully in a set of verses we hear in almost every wedding. It's in 1 Corinthians. It says, if I, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, like if I, if, if I am as articulate as the heavens, but I don't have love, I'm just like a noisy, clanging gong. If I, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I'm given the words of God to speak to the world, and I, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, you, get what Paul, you can hear what Paul's saying. If I'm the, the smartest guy on the planet, and I have, a, I have a faith that can move a mountain, that's pretty impressive. He said, but I, if I don't love, I'm nothing. Nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, just right now, write a check and give everything away. And give over my body to hardship. Just allow the world to pummel me so that I can boast about it. But I don't love? I, I, I have nothing. That, that is, those things, those are great. Nobody's going to, if you have faith and move mountains, you should exercise it. You have, you have been given words of God, you should speak them. You have the gift of, of giving, you should give. But if it doesn't include love, if it's not motivated by love, it's motivated by self. He's like, it's nothing. You have to think about that. Every time we do something good, we, there's a part of us that actually needs to repent. We have to repent. This is what Keller says. We have to repent of the good things we've done because of why we've done them. For us, for me. He's like, if it's not others motivated, 
If it's self-interested, it's nothing. Jesus says, bring the, bring the boy to me. I'm just moved. Another, another place, Paul's talking to his young upstart, Timothy. And he says to Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth. He doesn't articulate what that is, but we, it would be these kinds of things. Flee the evil desires of youth, where you're just trying to prove yourself, you're trying to win, you're trying to chase your, you know, your worldly dreams. Instead, pursue, right, the evil desires of youth, these pursuits, just stop with that. Grow up, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Timothy, you, you, you can't afford to be a representative of the gospel and have an impure heart, to have selfish motivations. Just don't, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid, which is inconsequential is what that means, arguments. Paul's heard this story. Peter's told this story. They've all told this story about Jesus coming down out of the mountain into the valley hundreds of times. And Paul's like, yes, don't stand around arguing about inconsequential things that just produces quarrels, battle lines. The Lord's servant must not be battling, but must be kind, authentic, able to teach, it says, which means authentic. In, in first century Eastern practices, to be able to teach isn't to be smart. It means that you're not a hypocrite. That's what makes you able to teach. I hear from you. I learn from you because I see it in your life. So be authentic, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, which means patiently discipled, not hammered. Patiently, lovingly come alongside, understanding, empathy, all that. It's always better to love, always better to love. Even in the situations where it just seems like, no, something has to be, this has to be corrected, this has to be said. That may be true, but it is better to love. Always. Better to love than to win. I personally don't think love and pride can coexist. I don't, I don't think it's possible for you to be self-motivated and to actually love. I, I, don't, I don't think that's too much of a stretch, is it? Doesn't that just make sense? So <laughs> we need the second thing. If the first thing is love, what's the other thing that we see when Jesus says, bring the boy to me? It's the me part. Just bring the boy to me. Up on the mountain, you remember what Jesus said? I told you I was going to get to this. What Jesus said, what, what God says once Elijah and Moses are gone, it's just Jesus and John. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's a big statement. You could, you could argue this is what the Christian life is all about. Listening to Jesus, which we've talked about this in the fullest sense of the word listen means to listen and to do. Follow him. Do as he does. Do as he says. Listen, this is the one. Elijah was important. Moses was, was important. That this is my son. Listen to him. 
When Jesus says, bring the boy to him, we have to be struck by how the disciples hadn't done it. They, we find out later they didn't even pray. <laughs> They're so messing this up. They didn't, they didn't go get Jesus. And so we see the answer to the world's problems, to the sicknesses and the oppositions and the immorality and the perversions and the egocentrism. The answer to our struggle, the way to live a good Christian life, to affect change in the world, is to bring Jesus in. Leave it to the man, the one, the Son of God. Bring him in. That's what Jesus is saying. The answer to our rat race lives, our self-driven lives, is to have love rather than pride as our motivator, and we get there by bringing Jesus in. So we still really haven't, that's part of the answer. How? How do we bring Jesus in, as it were? I think the first thing is you have to realize who you are in the story. Who are you in the story? Are you the Pharisee, the know-it-all? Are you the disciples, the sort of guys trying to figure it out but not quite getting it right? Are you the crowd? Are you the father? Maybe you can relate to all those in some form. Most importantly, you're the boy. I think that's the thing we've got to remember. You're sick. I'm sick. I'm under spiritual attack. I'm helpless apart from Christ. I'm, I'm even useless apart from Jesus. I'm the boy. I'm the one having an epileptic seizure in life. I can't solve this on my, on my own. So first, bringing Christ in to the problems of the world, to, to the things that, that do need to be dealt with, to the, the way to engage the world in a godly fashion is to first bring him in to me. Bring Jesus in first means having him alive in me. This is our be before do. It's always be before do. If we are experiencing the presence of Jesus, then maybe we can help somebody else hear Jesus. Or maybe, maybe better, that, how do we bring Jesus into the situation with others is to first bring him into us. That's when we have a chance of bringing him in to these others. Because what people need above all else is the presence of God. <laughs> this is crazy. And Jesus has entrusted his followers with this unimaginable thing, his presence in us. And Paul again to the church in Col uh, Colossia, says, uh, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, talking about Christ among the Gentiles, is Christ in you. <laughs> it's like, this is what's amazing. It's not just about that Jesus and all that he did. This is true. He's in you. Our question is, how do I pay attention to the fact that Jesus is here and his presence is what I need most and his presence in me is what the world needs most? 
I've counseled many people that have been going into difficult situations that want to know, how do I be a good Christian in this space? And I said, you have the presence of God in you. All you have to do is show up. What they need is the presence of God. They need, the, they need his presence. They need Jesus to be brought in there. So just go in. It's not about what you say or what you do. That's where we go. It's just the presence. I still haven't fully answered this question for you. How do you live within the truth of the gospel of who he is? How do you bring Jesus in? How do you become what it is we are to become? And so... I must reiterate for you the transformation triangle. <laughs> for those of you that have been around for a long time, I can't, I, this has been a revolutionary uh, construct for me and for Vista. We haven't talked about it for a while. But I want to talk to you about this idea of the transformation triangle because it is the best kind of framework that, I, that we can come up with of how to be alive in Christ. I think we might even have illustrations I can't see the TVs is there the triangle up there no okay <clears throat> so it's here's where it starts I'll go through this really quickly and we'll, we'll call it a day it starts with the Holy Spirit it starts with salvation there, there is no hope of change there is no hope of transformation apart from God in you when we get the presence of God within us in a principled sort of way, the principle of it is by trusting the Son, and then the Son deposits the Spirit, which is, again, this is, this is crazy, kind of crazy to think about. Listen to, listen to the way Peter puts this. His divine power, speaking of God, has given us everything we need for godly life. Our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Knowing Christ, in Christ we have all that we need. Through these promises he has given us this very great and precious promise so that through them we participate, <laughs> catch this phrase, we participate in the divine nature The Holy Spirit within us is the DNA of God. Christ deposits the Spirit of God within us. And because of that, we can flourish and be transformed into Christ-likeness. It's like DNA being deposited. Paul says in Romans, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is, this is where we're headed. And this is not about performance per se. This is first about just having the DNA of God deposited by Jesus in the form of the Holy Spirit. Now once, you, once you've made that step of faith, you should be transforming into the image of Christ. Just like my boys <laughs> continue to physically transform into their dad, unfortunately for them. If you watch the three of us walk away, you'd be like, wow, the same gait, the same body structure, the same long neck. You know, it's like 
Thank goodness they have their own unique personalities, but physically, they have no chance but to become what their DNA tells them to become. And in Christ, with the DNA of God within us, if we are not becoming more Christ-like, there's a defect in the environment in which it's to grow. Like a seed will grow, and an apple seed will not grow into an orange tree. It will grow into an apple tree, but it might not grow into an apple tree if the environment isn't right. And this is what we put on the points of the triangle. The environment is made up of three things, and it starts with choices. To some degree, spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are, are simply a way of being immersed in what is already true. We, we, we practice the practices of Jesus because he asked us to. And what we find when we get there is the presence of God, which is already within us. We are, we are trying to pursue the presence of God while having the presence of God within us. So the spiritual disciplines is just to settle into what is true. Same with the obediences of God. What God has laid out in Scripture for us to obey, we should obey. What God has spoken into our lives with greater specificity through the, through the Spirit, we should obey. If we pick and choose our way through what it is we're going to obey of God's Word and His movement in our life, we can believe we are ruining the environment and the whole process of change. When someone says, I don't know, I just, I just can't seem to make progress here. And I open up the transformation triangle and I start here and I say, so are you obeying the things of God? Well, you know, it's okay, I don't know. What do you mean? I'm not being transformed into more Christ-likeness, but you're not even practicing. Practices are just simply an outworking of, of what we value. And it reinforces those values. You are practicing stuff every day built on values that you do not embrace. It's thrust upon you. If you're not obeying, if you're not practicing spiritual disciplines of obedience and things like fasting and worship and devotionals and scripture and serving and repenting and forgiving, if you're not doing those things, you're not going to grow. No transformation. Even though you have the Spirit of God within it, your environment is corrupted. Secondly, community. God is a community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And out of that, we are created, and we are created to enjoy community, to be in community. There are hundreds of one another commands in in the Bible. It is in community that we are exposed if we're humble is where we receive grace in the midst of those exposures. This is where we are challenged. This is where we are encouraged in close community. It's the only way we can be transformed. You cannot do it on your own. You have way too many blind spots. We practice the right choices. We practice community. And then third, uh, the circumstances of life. This is the one of the three parts of the environment we don't control. You control your choices and you can control your community, right? You get to choose if you're going to do what God's asked you to do. You get to choose 
uh, if you're going to, not even choose if you're in community, but choose who you hang out with, right? That's one of the best quotes. Like, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Who you choose is yours, how you live, obedience, what practices of life, your choice. People you hang out with, your choice. Circumstances, not your choice. God gets this one angle in on the environment. It's like, I'm controlling this. You don't get control of it. What you do get control of with regard to circumstances is how you react to it. Whether you react in faith and trusting God in the midst of the hard things of life, typically, and your heart becomes softer like God's heart, or you resist the circumstances, God, you reject him in the middle of the hard circumstances. How can he? And the heart gets harder. If you want to live out of a place of security, godly affirmation rather than a place of scrambling to find it you got to start by being the boy recognize how much you need jesus and inviting him in to reaffirm who you are in christ to do the things necessary to provide the environment for transformation and then enjoy that transformation it doesn't happen overnight You want to see those within your midst who are still far from God? You want to see them take steps closer to God? It's not about what you say and it's not about what you do. It's going to be about who you are and it's going to be about the presence of God within you impacting them. So you got to live there. We got to get the gospel into our heart. We got to get our identity from Christ. And the way we do that continually, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, bring yourself to Jesus continuously and forever. And then we can get on with now how do we live in a missional way to the world around us. But we've got to start there. <clears throat> God, we, we feel it. Like I admit I am susceptible to the practices and the messages of this world that aim at me and my weaknesses and promise to make me stronger and more successful. And God, I know it's a move of your spirit when you come close, you expose that, you forgive that, you give grace to that, and you transform me out of it. God, I'm so grateful for your patience, your loving kindnesses, are patient and forgiving. But God, as a person and as a church, can I just say to you now, with, with as much sincerity as I can muster, that I know it's about you. Life is about you in me. It's not about me. I can't seem to get that through my thick skull and in deeply enough into my heart. So now I'm asking you 
Can I ask you with all the sincerity that I can muster for myself and for all of us together, God, we, we, we say amen to this together. Change me. Forgive me. Help me step away from the efforts to exalt myself. And let my life exhibit your presence and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.